Welcome to Mile High Magazine. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping events in Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. And welcome into another edition of uh, Mile High Magazine. This is Murphy Houston. And this is American Stroke Month, the month of May. And we're going to try to educate you on what's going on, get you involved to help raise money for the cause. It's a big deal. And really try to get you a part of what's happening here in the city of Denver. A couple of guests we have. We have Carrie Mai with us, who's a stroke survivor. Carrie, thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. And Helen Drexler, who's the 2018 Denver Heart and Stroke Walk Chair. That's That's, a big job, right? That's a big job. Yeah, it is. And that walk is coming up on June 2nd. Correct. And it's, uh, is that at My High Stadium? It is. Woo! How'd you get that? Woo! Well, the American Heart Association pulls a lot of great, uh, uh, pulls in some great stuff for us. Right. And it's a combination uh, when we talk about uh, American Stroke Month. It is the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. You kind of work together on this? Right. So it's American Heart Association, but they really focus on heart disease and stroke. And so this month we're talking a lot about stroke, but they really focus on both causes. Because they kind of go hand in hand. They do. Absolutely. Because we've had some of these conversations before with other guests. But Carrie, let's let's talk about your situation. Now, you are a stroke survivor. We just mentioned that. Yeah. Give us a little history on that. What happened? Yeah, sure. So uh, my story began in November of 2016. I uh, was dropping my children off at school and getting ready to start my day. And I talked into a local coffee shop to grab some, grab a nice latte. And I, as I was grabbing the cup of coffee, I noticed I couldn't feel the warmth of the cup of coffee against my hand. Wow. And I sat down, I opened my laptop, started working, and then I felt a tingling, a numbness uh, on my left side. And I did immediately know that it was neurological um, and uh, likely because I had, uh, because of the American Heart Association and because of the acronym FAST, um, arm weakness being one of them. And I uh, never had felt that before. Closed my laptop, went right right to the hospital right away. I knew time was really You drove it. yourself. I did. Shouldn't have. <laughs> I was going to say, was that the smartest thing to do? No, oh. um, I felt like I had to get there as quickly as possible, and I wasn't really thinking maybe I should call an ambulance, which I should have done. Uh, but I, I ended up uh, going to the hospital. Did have the stroke. The stroke was caused by a cavernous malformation in the pons area of my brainstem, which is basically a group of abnormal blood vessels that were very thin. Um, the walls are very thin and, uh, it bled. Uh, and so I had the stroke there and then, uh, it actually bled again a couple of weeks later. And the determination was made at that time that I needed to have surgery to remove the cavernous malformation. Um, and so I, I suffered, you know, as I, I had two strokes, I suffered, uh, you know, great neural fatigue, a lot of balance issues, uh, facial weakness, uh, issues with uh, sight, and then and then suffered a lot of deficits from the brain surgery itself, which I'm recovering from. A long process for you. Very long. Yeah. Yeah. No symptoms ahead of time. Just in no. the coffee shop, no headaches or maybe a little numbness before that. No, or nothing. It came on very quickly, and um, you know, within a span of thirty minutes, I was in the hospital. And I should mention, because I'm looking right at her, this is not an old person situation. You're very young. I am young. I was forty when I had the stroke. I'm forty-two now. Uh, I am uh, was in uh, great health before, and 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 now. Uh, but yeah, uh, it, it, and it happens to young people. So it does. And women. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Most anybody from what I've learned over the years. That's right. So tell us more how that stroke affected you. Cause it's different with everybody. I sure. mean, everybody has a different situation. Sure. So deficit wise, yeah. uh, neuro fatigue was huge. So, uh, just exhausted exhaustion through those strokes. Um, the stroke happened, as I mentioned, in my brainstem. So I suffered a lot of, uh, you know, deficits that uh, are a result of something happening in your in your brainstem. So a lot of um, coordination, movement, 
uh, t- hard time balancing things. Um, you know, then after the surgery, definitely I had double vision. I had um, definite trouble walking. I uh, had facial weakness and drooping, and it's really full-on paralysis on my right side of my face. Trouble blinking my eye. Um, so a lot of um, a lot of physical physical uh, deficits. So it got a lot worse before it got better. It sure did. It was a long process. Uh, I am absolutely coming out of it now, but uh, it, it took a long time to to recover and bounce back. Were you in the hospital a long time with that? Uh, I was not in the hospital very long. Uh, for surgery, is her dull strokes? I was in and out in in a day, but home in bed, um, recovering from the neural fatigue. Uh, with my um, brain surgery, I was in the hospital for five days. And uh, recovering recovery took about a month. Do you have children? I have two children. How tough was that? Tough to uh, to have the job of being a mom to work. I am also full time uh, sales representative and uh, a full time stroke survivor. It takes it's a full time effort. Unbelievable. Mentally and physically. You have to be strong for that. You have to have really, really good mental strength to get through this, and uh, yeah. And a lot of support. Uh, I think that's critical, and I was so blessed and am blessed to have such incredible support. My family, my husband, my children, my parents. My surgery was done in New York City, so I had my parents there uh, with me and recovered for the most part in the New York area. Uh, before I was able to come home. So I think um, having a stable support system of friends and family and colleagues um, is is absolutely essential to recovery. And the thing is, I, you can't prepare for that. I mean, no. it's not like, well, let's have a game plan ready in case something happens to me and having a stroke. No, and I think that's where, that's the importance of, of, of organizations like the American Heart Association is, can't prepare for anything uh, for that hard left turn in life. Um, but you can be aware of the things that when they happen, if they happen, you're ready to respond to life's events. And on, and, and uh, hopefully that will, that will never happen. But the fact of the matter is it does happen. Stroke does happen. It happens to women. You know, it, you know more women die of, of stroke than breast cancer. Uh, so it's, uh, it's an enormous issue and it's one that if prepared, I believe the statistic is 80% of strokes are preventable. So the awareness factor, uh, truly helps in life's hard turns like this. So your prognosis is good. You look, you look great. Oh, thanks. I, uh, I'm out of the woods. Yeah, I am out of the woods. I, my mouth, cavernous malformation is renewed. It was renewed successfully. I uh, basically have gone through uh, a lot of the recovery uh, process now and dealing with um, dealing with repairing some of the um, facial nerves that were damaged. Just had surgery at John Hopkins two weeks ago and um, to uh, to repair the nerves, and after that, I, I I'm hoping I can ski next season. And I'm still having troubles riding my bike. I occasionally walk into a wall, but my husband says that's totally normal. I've seen it before, <laughs> so so I think I'm pretty much oh, good. My. I'm in a good sta- on a good place. Isn't he helpful? <laughs> <laughs> well, he keeps the uh, comedic relief up. That's for sure. Now, let me ask you this. I always think we have excellent health care in Denver. It sounds like a lot of your health care was in New York. You know, I wanted to find the the best neurosurgeon I could find. It's not a broken finger. It's my brain. And so I needed to rely on a lot of my contacts are in New York. It's where I'm from. And so um, I relied on family and friends to give me the best advice in terms of, um, and I do have family that's in the medical field. So I got my references there, and my family also lives in the New York area. Oh, so I see. That, that's a big factor. A right. huge factor in recovery right. uh, to find, A, the best surgeon, and then, D, a place where I could I could go home and recover. Well, we're talking with Carrie Mai, who's a stroke survivor. We're talking about American Stroke Month, uh, what she's been through. 
little heads up for all of you because it can happen to anybody at any time. Would you not agree with that, Carrie? Absolutely. And she's telling her story, which is, I'm glad you're sharing that because it's got to be tough to come and talk about it. Well, I think stories not only change lives, but they can save lives. So I'm happy to be here to do that. Oh, I like that. Let me write that quote down. That's a great one. <laughs> There's a qu quotable quote. We're going to come back to you and talk more about FAST, which uh, I know about, and to educate people about symptoms for stroke and what you ought to be doing. But we want to talk to uh, Helen over here. Poor girl sitting here just shaking her head. <laughs> just enjoying the story. It's well, really it's inspiring. Awesome. It is. And there's a lot of stories like that. Would you not agree, Helen? Uh, there are many. And this is a Helen Drexler, who's the 2018 Denver Heart and Stroke Walk Chair. The walk is coming up on June 2nd. Yes, it is. Mile High Stadium. Yes, indeed. They don't let you walk on the grass, or do you have to stay? Well, I don't think we're going to be on the grass, but they are going to let us have the end zone for yoga. Wow. Yeah. So you have a little nice. yoga warm-up for this? Is we will be is? doing yoga, I think, around uh, 8.30 uh, in the end zone. I'm hoping to see Miles in a downward-facing dog. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I might pay to see that. <laughs> Aren't you surprised I even know what you're talking about? <laughs> uh, yoga is such a good thing, for I would imagine, for victims of stroke or just people in general. Huh? Uh, absolutely. Yoga is a great exercise. Um, a lot a lot of people are doing it. We have a lot of great things happening in Denver with yoga. Um, but just um, activity in general, I think, is important for both healthy hearts and uh, stroke prevention. And we're going to find out, too, uh, when Carrie comes back, that well, exercise is a big part of maybe avoiding a stroke, isn't mm -hmm. it? Is it not? I think a healthy body is really important, and just general physical activity is extremely important. Well, and you know what? That's pretty much important for anything. Don't you yeah, think? I absolutely. mean, any situation might happen. Being in shape and eating right might help you a little bit with that situation. So the heart and uh, stroke walk is family friendly. It's very family friendly. Um, I know at Delta Dental of Colorado, where I'm the president and CEO, we've got a team of about 100 associates coming out that day. And they're bringing their family, their kids, their dogs. Um, so bring your family and come on out on June 2nd. You know, Delta Dental, really involved in the community. Ex absolutely. I hear the name all the time, and I do a lot of, you know, we talked about, I'm seeing mm -hmm. the arthritis walk the other Sunday, but I do a lot of that. And Delta Dental always seems to be somehow involved. Well, we uh, believe it's really important to be a good corporate citizen, and we want to give back to the community. We're a nonprofit uh, and the only nonprofit dental insurance company in the state, so we want to make sure we're in the community and raising awareness about oral health. Well, I know this is not about Delta Dental. But how could it be nonprofit? People are thinking that right now. What do you mean you're nonprofit? We are. We yeah. are a nonprofit insurance company, uh, which means that we give back our profit to the community. Um, and over half of our profit does go back to the community, either through our foundation or community benefit activities like supporting the American Heart Association. Good job. Thank Congratulations you. on that. So tell us why a company such as Delta Dental or individuals should get involved with the Heart Walk coming up on June 2nd. Well, first of all, it's just a really fun event. But I think from a corporate perspective, companies have an opportunity to use the Heart Walk as a way to bring their uh, employees together, to get out and do something healthy, to build morale and esprit de corps among their employees. And um, we just think it's a great cause. Well, and get involved. How, do, how, do, how does the company get involved? It's really easy. You go to www.heartwalk.org and you'll find or just search Denver Heartwalk um, and you'll be able to sign up your company, sign up a team, um, and then you can also do fundraising, which, of course, is very important. Yeah, the money's And Where does the money go, Helen? There are always people want to know, where's the money going? Does it stay in Colorado? Does it spread all over the country? Um, actually, the money does stay in Colorado. And uh, last year, we put $14.7 million into research in Colorado for heart and stroke. How much? $14.7 million. Wow. Congratulations. It's a great organization, and they really believe that through research and community support, we're going to make a difference on both heart disease and stroke. So where does it go, $14 million? Does it go, does it go to Anschutz, or does it go to the CU uh, Cancer Research Center, or, or where? It goes to a number of different places. Um, the Heart Association is involved in a, a number of research activities with hospitals, with private um, cancer, or sorry, heart research. Sure. Um, and so it's really going into research as well as community support. Um, Carrie talked a lot about the importance of her family um, supporting her after her stroke. Um, but there are resources online for families of heart disease and stroke that you can find on the Heart Association's website. Check that out. 
for sure. How did you get involved? What, what what's your besides Delta Dental? What is what, what you got to have a, a another reason? So my why is actually my father, um, much like uh, Carrie's story. Uh, my my story comes through watching my father suffer from a stroke eleven years ago, and when I arrived in Atlanta. Five years ago, where I was working at the time, um, the Heart Association uh, approached me to join their executive leadership team for the Heart Walk, and sure. I knew it was the right thing to do because watching my dad suffer from a stroke uh, and kind of get through, he had a lot of expressive aphasia issues after his stroke. Um, mm -hmm. It was difficult to watch my dad really become someone he wasn't. It wasn't the same person I knew from before his stroke, and watching him struggle to get that back was really difficult. Hard. Mm -hmm. Did you have somewhat of a helpless feeling? Like, what? Well, I need to do something. You you do. Um, when when strokes affect your brain, and that affects different people in many different ways, um, I remember my dad, who um, was a man of words. He was a pastor, and he grew up in the church. Uh, so he always had a grasp of words, and his stroke really took that away from him. He really struggled to find a word. He knew what it was, but he couldn't get it out through his mouth. Very frustrating to see that struggle. Mm -hmm. It was. Well, glad you were there to kind of help him, and now we, you're the you're continuing on to help. That's right. Well, we're glad to have you involved. Now, the Heart and Stroke Walk is a year-long campaign to build a healthier community here in Denver. We know that, but how can people really improve their overall wellness and and become healthy for good? I think it's small steps. You know, I've struggled with my weight most of my life. And what I've seen my hand go up with that, you know, <laughs> I mean, really, I think most people do. Most I mean, do. if you look at the statistics in the U.S., we definitely have a challenge with um, obesity and people who struggle with their weight. And what I've come to realize is it's little steps every day. It's small behavior changes every day um, that keep you focused on health. Um, and the other thing is stress is a huge oh. inhibitor in yeah. your efforts to be healthy. So you have to bring a lot of things together um, to get healthy for good. I would think, and Carrie, I'll reflect this back to you. Uh, I actually talked to a neurosurgeon uh, a couple months ago, and he was saying stress is one of the biggest factors behind stroke. Is that true? Well, I'm not a doctor, but I know stress is a core of a lot of problems uh, that we have with our health. Yeah, it's yeah. a killer. I would say um, when I you know, look back on um, lessons learned before and after. Uh, I did, I tried to do all the right things to be healthy, to stay in shape, to, to um, you know, follow what the American Heart Association recommends as the life, you know, simple seven to achieve health, which is don't smoke, didn't, was not a smoker, very physically active, was running half marathons, biking, hiking, always outside, um, always trying to eat a healthy diet, uh, maintain a healthy body weight. Um, but stress was the one I could never control very well. I was always wor either working in a high-stress uh, job or just had a really hard time um, managing it. And it was a wake-up call uh, for right, me right. to... Uh, take a breath in life and to start developing strategies like yoga, uh, like meditation, to really help get to a place where I could be more uh, proactive in, in fighting stress. But it's a killer. It is for a lot of reasons. Would you agree with that, Helen? For your heart and your brain. Yeah, Ab exactly. Absolutely. I was just at a symposium the other night, and they were actually talking about toxic stress, which was a term I had never heard of before. Me either. What is that? Well, it, it, so they're, they're studying children who are in high-stress environments or high-stress situations, um, and they call it toxic stress. But what was really interesting was they're starting to study individuals who go through extreme stress early in their life, and the rates of heart disease and stroke and, and even suicide increase later in life because of how that stress affects the body early on. So I agree. I think stress is a killer, and I think it's something we have to really work on. Does basic exercise relieve stress? Absolutely. I mean, if you jump on the elliptical for 20 minutes, that should help, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Or even just get up from your desk if you're in dealing with stress at work. Take a 10-minute walk, 15-minute yes. walk. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Or how about signing up and be part of the Heart and Stroke Walk? Yes. Would that help? That would really help. <laughs>
Just... We would love that. <laughs> we want to see 20,000 people out at Mile High uh, Stadium on June 2nd, and we hope that you're inspired today to think about getting online and sign up. And even if you don't sign up, come out anyways, June 2nd, 8 to noon. What a vision that would be. It's an awesome day. And help raise money for the cause. Raise money for the cause. Um, come out for a walk. Spend the morning with us. And you'll even see yourself on the big uh, jumbotron as you walk through the stadium at the end of the walk. I had that happen once to me when I was emceeing an event there at Mile High Stadium. It was most frightening. Kids ran out screaming, who is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> it was just a creepster on there. It's just what it was. So, Helen, I'm going to ask you this question since you're with Delta Dental. I had read once that there is a connection between uh, oral health and heart health. And I know when my wife, now she's a two-time breast cancer survivor, but when she has her teeth clean, she has to take an antibiotic. And I never, and I, I want to know why. <laughs> well, I can tell you why, because um, my son is a kidney transplant and uh, re- recipient, um, and he is very, very diligent about his oral health. And the reason is your mouth is a connection to your body, and you there's a lot of places where infection can get in through your teeth and gums and into your bloodstream. So, you know, if you think about the blood that's coming from your teeth, if they're, if your gums are inflamed, that's basically a place for infection to get started. Um, so there's a strong connection between oral health and overall health. And as my dentist says, you better be flossing. Because, I mean, seriously, wouldn't that be part I, of that? I right? like to say only floss the ones you want to keep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's quite a vision just popped into my head with Ellen for sure. Well, here's what's going on here on this edition of Mile High Magazine. On June 2nd is the Heart and Stroke Walk. Uh, we have Carrie Mai, who's a stroke su- survivor here uh, and looking good. We have Helen Drexler from Delta Dental, the uh, 2018 Denver Heart and Stroke Walk Chair. And again, it's June 2nd. We'll tell you more again how you can get involved during American Stroke Month put on by the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association. And, uh, Carrie, I want to talk to you. You mentioned earlier, and I've heard this phrase, FAST, which mm-hmm. is an acronym, I realize. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that and yeah. what, what people really need to know? Because yeah. I think I've heard FAST is extremely important knowledge you need to have. Yes, and it's important for you as a person. It's important for, you know, as, you're, as you uh, see this happening in loved ones or friends that, that everyone knows what it is. And it's an acronym that um, it really allows to help people to recognize the most common stroke warning signs. So F stands for... Uh, face drooping, facial weakness. Right. Um, does one side droop more than the others? Uh, a is arm weakness, that feeling of uh, numbness or tingling that you might have on one side of the arm. S is speech, is your speech slurring, is it sounding differently? Um, and then T is time. Time is critical. And you know, it, the importance of getting help quickly can save lives in a, in a, in a great And, and a when you say way. quickly, you're not saying, ah, my arm's okay, I'll, I might check on no, it tomorrow. Though. It's like now, no. like you did. You now. jumped in the car and no. you were gone. Now, yeah. That's, that's because you knew. You, I knew this. Yes. I knew that. You, I knew that's fast. That's right. You knew yeah, fast. I did. So why is time so critical? Can you talk more about that? Because every second counts if you have a brain bleed or a clot and and then the, the brain cells that are killed um, uh, are, are happening at such a, a quick clip that every second matters in terms of your overall health and well-being and the deficits that you may, um, you may incur so after a stroke happens. So it's important for you, time, we're thinking time here, Get to an emergency room? Yes. How about an urgent care? Would an urgent care, I mean, you know, emergency rooms are pretty well prepared for that, I would think. But what about an urgent care? Because people do that a lot now. I'm just going to go to the well, urgent care. Well, I'll speak for myself and say it would be an emergency room. You need to you need to be uh, having an MRI as soon as possible. Um, in some uh, places around the country now, they are actually having MRIs in the ambulance, which is really uh, a, a time saver. But oh, you need yeah. to be in, a, in an emergency room mm-hmm. where you can get a drain MRI as soon as possible to see what's happening. And that would really help in treating the stroke itself. That's correct. And how to treat the stroke. There are two different kinds of strokes. Explain, one is due, Explain that. One is, um, one is hemorrhagic, and that is due to bleeding, and the other is due to a clot. 
So very different ways to treat strokes. I'm not a doctor. I don't know that you know the technicalities of it, but but different different um, different types of strokes that require uh, a different protocol. So when you went to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Did they know? I mean, did they know immediately what uh, kind of they, stroke you're they, having? They knew I was potentially having a stroke. Um, I said to them, I think I am having a stroke. Here's why. I was rushed into an MRI, uh, and then it was determined that my stroke was due to a bleed, uh, which was a hemorrhagic stroke. Uh, in, in my case, the cavernous malformation bled into it itself, so it was contained. Um, and uh, I was not at further risk of, of having issues. But, um, you know, there could, there could, there's very different things that doctors can do on both ends to help treat uh, either stroke, well, either type of stroke. A bleeding stroke like you had or a clot stroke, mm-hmm. do they want to operate immediately to repair damage? Uh, can they get the clot out? Does it I don't, depend on I don't where it is in your brain? I don't know the to, the, to that that side with the hemorrhagic strokes that I had, um, it was not necessary to operate immediately due a to the fact that it was not uh, not an active bleed at that time, and also that it was in a very very uh, as my neurosurgeon said high rent district of my brain, uh, sitting deep within the pons, which really controls all of your movement and cognitive function. So there was no no uh, reason to remove it at that time. In fact, the risks of removing it far outweighed the risks of uh, just doing nothing at that point. It became active when I had a second stroke three weeks later. Wow. And that's when it, it had moved actually closer to an area which was safer for them to remove. But I would have to deal with the deficits of having the surgery. However, if I continued to do nothing... I would continue to have further strokes, and my chances of bouncing back each time became uh, less and less. So as he said in, I guess, a New York fashion, take your licks up front or take them over the long haul. Let's get it done now. You have a year. It's going to be a hard year. You're going to need a lot of mental strength, um, but do it now, and then you'll be done, or you could face something catastrophic. Something catastrophic. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, Carrie, we appreciate you talking about it. And let's let's go over FAST again. It's an acronym. One mm-hmm. more time so people are mm-hmm. aware, people learn here what the symptoms. FAST is facial weakness, arm numbness, speech, difficulty, and time. So even if you're not having the stroke, if you see somebody in your oh, absolutely. workplace or your There's your so many spouse, stories, yeah, where you see your spouse and... You know, one minute they're going to make the coffee and the next minute they can't explain what they're doing. And yeah. so as a as a anyone needs to be aware of this. So, again, give us the information where to go because people, you know, they're yep. listening and they need to write stuff down. They need to be educated on all of this. You can visit DenverHeartWalk.org. The uh, HeartWalk is June 2nd. Right. That's a Saturday. Hopefully it'll be nice and warm and sunny, not like uh, we've had a few rainy days this week. Don't even bring that up. Um, it starts at 8 o'clock and it ends at noon. Uh, there will be a health zone where you can talk to other companies. We'll have information about health and fitness. Um, there'll be a 5K run, uh, 5K walk, and Denver in the, uh, sorry, yoga in the end zone. Yeah. You kind of like that part, don't you, Helen? <laughs> I yeah, do yeah, like yeah. that part. <laughs> Here's the part I like. Is there food tents afterwards? There are. There's going to be food and lots of water and beverages, and you'll, I'm sure, go home with a goodie bag full of lots of uh, wonderful little gifts and t- takeaways. Do you get a T-shirt? I believe you do get a T-shirt uh, if you raise a certain amount of money. Um, I know uh, Delta Dental, we're uh, definitely providing Delta Dental T-shirts. If you're joining a company team, you might talk to your organization about whether you want to rep the brand for your company that you're supporting. Well, we'll take anything, right? For, oh, and I think you. the Tooth Fairy might be there well, at the you, Delta Dental you, tent. You think so? I'm pretty sure. Well, handing out toothbrushes? <laughs> yes, or, absolutely. See, we know how that works. You're pretty excited about that, Gary? Can't know. wait. <laughs> going with my family. We'll do it all. We're experiencing it all. Do you have like a whole team involved with uh, the walk? No, I'm just going with my husband and my kids, my core team. The core so, team? The core team. That is the team. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you guys for coming in today. Thank we you, Murphy. It very much. Hope we got the word out. Hopefully it educates all of you. And uh, give them the website one more time. It's denverheartwalk.org. And that's where you can go to get information, too, about 
what we're talking about here. All the details will be there. That's great. And thank you guys for listening. Have a great day. It's Mile High Magazine, and we'll talk to you next week. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan. Her name is Frances Weisbart Jacobs, described as the mother of charities. Her work led to the formation of the charity organization, the Community Chest, and we're not talking monopoly. The Community Chest evolved to later become the United Way of America. She also led the founding of the Hebrew Ladies Benevolent Society to meet the social services needs of the more than 300 Jewish pioneers who had journeyed to Denver in 1872. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. That benevolent society later became Jewish Family Services. So be it JFS or United Way, Ms. Jacobs set the goal to serve persons in need, irrespective of faith, race, income, or ability. A mantra the nonprofit organization still executes to this day, touching the lives of over 25,000 persons in our community each year. On this edition, it's a quick touch base with Jewish Family Services Director of Family Safety Net Services, Ms. Shelley Hines. I do hear that a lot, that people assume that Jewish Family Service only serves Jewish people, but that's not the case at all. We're able to serve the entire community. You have a number of programs that are going on down there. I know the one the one that I learned about was uh, helping um I guess seniors or boomers fashion naturally occurring retirement communities, meaning just living in the same house that you are in, but making it work for you. Today, we're going to be talking about the lunchbox program you have, but you have more outreaches than those. Yes, we actually have quite a few different programs. So as the one you mentioned, we serve seniors and help them stay in their home safely. Mm -hmm. And we help people with disabilities and employment barriers. We do a lot of mental health counseling for people in the community and for refugees. And then my department, the Family Safety Net Program, does a lot of po- uh, poverty, does mm-hmm. a lot of poverty alleviation. So we have a food pantry and some emergency crisis prevention kinds of services, and then Lunchbox Express. Now, do you, under your safety net, do you also connect uh, families and people with other social services that can support them as well? Yes. Jewish Family Service, although we have a lot of programs, we can't take care of every need that people have. So we right. um, offer a lot of comprehensive services, but then make sure that we're connecting services um, and people to those services all over the community. If you can't do it, you can lead them to somebody who can. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they can find out at your website or they can pick up the phone and give you a call. Um, and you have offices in a number of locations, not just in southeast Denver. Um, You have one in Boulder and some other places. So you have offices where people may need assistance. Right. Our main office is here in southeast Denver, but we also have Shalom Denver that's more at 2nd and Bryant, Something, Mm -hmm. um, another office in Boulder, and some on the west side. Mm -hmm. Is there a 24-hour phone number in case people are in a crisis? Yes, you can always call Jewish Family Service at 303 597 5,000. 303-597-5,000. You also run the lunchbox program. Now, you know, I started thinking, lunchbox for kids? But if they're getting free lunch at school during the school year, then the school ends. What happens during the summer? Right. About 40-something percent, over 40 percent of school-age kids get free and reduced-price lunches during school. Uh-huh. And in, then in the summertime— there without those meals. And so that can be a real burden on families financially, um, as well as just the worry of um, making sure that their kids are fed in the summertime. And I think it's about 10% of kids are able to access those kinds of programs during the summer. So there's a huge gap that Lunchbox Express is able to fill. So where do you find the kids? Or do you let the kids find you? How does that happen? Do you post a flyer for the last day of school and say, come find us. But how does that work? Yes, we work all springtime with schools and parks and recs and the state, Denver County, um, Aurora County, all of the um, areas that there might be some need. And we make sure that we send flyers home with the kids in their backpacks before the end of school so that Mm -hmm. if there's going to be food in their area, they'll be able to uh, find those and know about them. 
And then we post it on websites and um, try to advertise it as much as we can so people know about it. In education these days in schools, there's always a long-running conversation, we'll call it, about nutrition. What the kids should have, what they should not have. You know, when the kids have their own perspective on what they like to eat. So (laughs) the meals that you're providing for them. Uh, Tell us about the nutrition there and and what you really do provide that they're going to like, but they also need to to be healthy. Well, this program is free to anyone that comes up that is 18 or years of age or under. No questions asked. They just get to come up to the bus and we've advertised the location and the time we're going to be there every day of the week. It's a lunch bus then. It is a lunch oh, bus. that's got to be mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> yes. It's really cute looking. Um, and it's something, it's a safe symbol. So people and kids associate that with um, something that's okay to come to. And so families can come and talk to our volunteers and our bus drivers. Sure. We have bus drivers that have been working in schools as teachers and tutors and paras. Uh, you know, the in the cafeteria. So they all like kids. And the meals are prepared fresh daily from Revolution Foods, delivered to those sites. We put them on the buses, go out to 15 different sites in the city, all across the metro area. And we really look at that menu and make sure that they're balanced nutritionally and yeah. follow the USDA regulations for this program and that they're really good and delicious for the kids. So lots of wraps and sandwiches made out of fresh um, produce and yeah, ingredients, yeah. milk, fresh fruits and vegetables. Wait a minute. I'm a kid and I'm saying, I don't have any Cheetos in there? What's the deal? Yes, that is true. And they will miss the Cheetos. <laughs> um, in our food pantry, we're able to provide some of those little extras. Yeah. But in the Lunchbox Express program, it's a federal program. And so it's, they've got very strict guidelines. Regardless. And we're not a, even allowed to... Yeah, I asked that question so that the parents will know that right. they're not having Fritos and Cheetos and all that stuff. No. You know, that, that it, it, it is really, really good. Now, now, now you said that, 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 that you put them on the lunch buses and the buses go out. Well, you know, everybody knows lunch is between 11 and 1 or so. So you must have 15 lunch buses or something that's going out to all these places. Is that correct? We have five refurbished buses that go out, and each bus goes to three different sites that aren't going to have any meals um, anywhere in that area. So the unique thing about this program is that those buses each year are able to identify um, gaps in services. It's in areas, and they might change from summer to summer because Mm -hmm. it will depend on if a school is going to do lunches in the summer or not, and we're able to find those pockets where there aren't going to be any lunches for those kids. So five buses— Three routes or three sites on each bus, so 15 sites. So that's how you get it covered during the lunch period. Mm -hmm. Uh Pretty good. But you just said you work with the schools to find out what schools are going to be open or not open so you can fill in those places where the schools are going to be closed and uh, the kids are going to need to eat lunch. Right. Especially in areas with very low incomes or high poverty levels, those are our target areas. Those are the areas that we're going to look for that there's a lot of – or a high percentage of kids that are going to be normally using those free and reduced price lunches. And again, mm-hmm. that's why we do a search every year to make sure we're filling in the gaps in the community. Yeah, and most people would think, oh, well, that's got to be near downtown someplace in Curtis Park and all that. But no, you go all over town. You're over in Lakewood. You're over in the west side, side of town, southeast as well. So how can um, mom and dad find out now that they didn't see the flyer the kid brought home was supposed to bring home the last day, but they'd like to make the connection with you. We have all of those sites listed on our website. That's www.lunchboxexpress.org. Oh, it's not jewishfamilyservice.org. It's Lunchbox Express, so they can go right there to it. Yes, and you can actually do either one, jewishfamilyservice.org or lunchboxexpress.org. Now, I think you're also needing some volunteers to help come pass out the lunches and make sure the kids get what they're supposed to eat. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. How can people become involved? Because you have a lot of, um, well, you have some uh, boomers who may be retired and want to give back to community now that uh, this may be just the thing to do for them, you know, a, a couple of days a week, especially since it's confined to just during the lunch hour period. So if I wanted to volunteer with, with you, One, how do I do it? And two, what are you going to have me do once I show up? All right. Well, you can just get on that website again at lunchboxexpress.org or jewishfamilyservice.org. 
and go through the volunteer process with us. Our volunteers all need to be background checked because we are working with kids. But we do use about 300 volunteers, I think 300 volunteers last summer. Mm -hmm. And they get to do all kinds of fun things. Our volunteers come back year after year because it's just fun. You're handing out, I mean, really, what could be better than making sure kids have food? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Our volunteers go out and hand out the food. And then what we really want them to be doing is engaging with those kids and, and being a good model for those kids and engage with them and also reading books. In addition to the meals a few years ago, we also decided that we really needed to also provide some books yeah, for kids yeah. to just have and take home for free and just to keep. They don't have to bring them back. We have a great volunteer group that decided that as they watch kids and read some books to them, that Mm -hmm. they really wanted to make that a big part of our program. And so last summer, we gave out um, about 23,000 meals and then about 10,000 books. And 10,000 books Mm -hmm. with the meals. Mm -hmm. And our volunteers will read to them and get to know those kids. and Uh, Grade levels? All grade levels. Reading levels. Mm -hmm. And some in Spanish and really at age-appropriate levels and interest levels. So a wide variety of books and then those meals and uh, friendly volunteers that will engage with the kids and make it just a fun lunch, kind of a picnic lunch experience for all the kids. How long did you tell me this program has been going on? This is our fifth summer. Your fifth Mm -hmm. summer. And it's probably, I'm, I'm speculating that it's growing, more kids are taking advantage of it, or just more kids in need these days. Yes, for sure. More kids in need. Um, and with the five buses, we're still limited. So there, we also want to make sure that kids are connected to their schools and make sure that they know about other lunches as well, even if we're not in those areas. Our main purpose and our main goal is really to make sure that kids have food in the summer. You yeah. know, being hungry yeah. impacts us throughout our whole life, you know, with our health and even education and the books as well. In Families that experience poverty oftentimes mm-hmm. don't have books at all for their kids. Yeah, and so yeah, I think this program is really important um, and a very important asset to the community to just make sure kids are fed. So a volunteer on any given day is going to go to all three sites with the bus, not necessarily ride on the bus, but at least trail it where it's going. You know what we hear from the volunteers is they like riding the bus. Really? It can be hot and it's old school buses, <laughs> but it's part of the experience. The drivers are great and you get that whole um, team experience. We'll right. have a lot of corporate groups that go and do it as a team building experience as oh, well. That's even so you better. can volunteer for one time or multiple times throughout the summer. And we just have a database system that you can just sign up for certain days and make it fit into your schedule. And so you don't have a commitment of, you know, every Tuesday or anything. You just get to choose the days you want. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's got to be a lot of fun there. And just because you said it could be a, a corporate thing, if small businesses are looking for a team building exercise, this is a good one. Absolutely. Yeah. Because they it really doesn't have take a lot, a lot of, of people, you mm-hmm. know, at the same time. You right. Know. To do that. And so they would use the same phone number to get their uh, company in- involved, their employees involved as an outreach the way uh, Excel does. And it's Excel day of service. Then you can have your company become involved with the Lunchbox Express. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's the 303-597-5000 number. Yeah. Call there and our receptionist will direct the call to our volunteer department. Now, you're going to get started on May 29th, is it? Is that it? Yes, and it goes according to school schedule. So three um, three buses will start on Tuesday, and then the rest will start the following week because it depends on um, the school district and when they get out of school. And then we also, this is an expensive program in a lot of ways just because it's a mobile site. Yeah. And that's different than maybe a, a church having a program there and having food there. It's us having those buses go out to the community. And so um, donations are also, even if you can't go out and volunteer, donations to help make sure that we can feed these kids, um, I think it's really helpful. The same number again for donations mm-hmm. and it's... Absolutely. And our website, you can donate online as well to the program. Okay. And the program's going to run through, what, the beginning of August, maybe the second week of August when the schools start? Yes, again. when the school starts. So our last program, I think, is August 17th. August 17th. Mm-hmm. So 
that can be a wonderful summer. Oh, yeah. Fun summer, too. The manager, Doug Vega, loves this program, and he gets excited every year when it's time to start. So he's it's very exciting. Yeah, it's a fun program. We thank Shelley Hines, Director of Family Safety Net Services of Jewish Family Services, for being our guest on this edition. Please consider becoming one of their volunteers for the Lunchbox Express this summer. Information, again, is online at Lunchbox Express. One word, just the way it sounds. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay in your game. And we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Melissa Moore. Hi, it's Melissa Moore. Thank you for joining us on this Sunday morning. It is Mile High Magazine, and we are all big dog lovers, I feel like, here in Colorado. And I've had a golden retriever myself, and they are one of the most loving, amazing dogs out there. And so I'm thrilled to have Kevin Shipley, who is the executive director of the Golden Retriever Rescue of the Rockies, here this morning. Good morning. Hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for being here. Let's talk a little bit about Golden Retriever Rescue of the Rockies. How long have you guys been here? in Denver? Uh, This is our 22nd year of operation. So 1996 is when we started. Okay. And uh, we started in kind of the traditional fashion foster-based system, working out of some rented kennels, etc. And in uh, 2011, we moved into a five-acre facility in Arvada. So we have a live-in caretaker and day kennels and about 150 volunteers that come out and help uh, help walk the dogs, socialize them, exercise them during the course of any given week. So tell me, why was there a need for, because golden retrievers, we're talking about a specific breed of dog that has their own rescue. What was the need behind that? Well, originally we started as an offshoot of Mile High Golden Retriever Club. Somebody there kept getting calls on people that uh, would either discover an abandoned golden retriever or a stray or somebody had uh, wanted to surrender their dog for various reasons and it became overwhelming to the point that she branched off and then started one of the first rescues in Colorado and so that's how it all came about and since then uh, we've placed rescued rehabbed and placed about 5,800 golden retrievers and golden mixes. Somebody who has a golden retriever who has to make that difficult decision to surrender their dog what are the benefits of going with the Golden Retriever Rescue of the Rockies? We are not typical of most rescue organizations. I appreciate anybody that has a passion for dogs and wants to help take care of them and find them the home. That's a wonderful thing. Um, the differentiator for us is we are one of only four of 96 Golden Retriever Rescues in the country that actually have a facility. Uh, other rescues work through foster-based systems. So a dog comes in, they place it in one of their foster homes who usually has another dog. Um, and then, and, but you're placing a dog that has no history, no known history, really, behaviorally or medically, in a strange home, only temporarily, uh, assuming the dog's going to get along with that person's dog. Um, and where we really specialize is that we have the facility. And so we don't have to be in a hurry. We have five acres. Um, The dogs are in the day kennels during the day, so they get plenty of socialization. They all sleep in the house at night, which is a crazy situation, as you can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, it's a series of baby gates. I was going to say. Yeah, whatever your imagination does with that, that's probably what it looks like. Because they are big babies. They They just want love and attention and be held and all of that. Yes, absolutely. So anyway, so our real differentiator is a couple of things. One, we have the facility, so we don't have to be in a hurry. It's not a first-come, first-serve. It is in what is whatever is going to make the dog happiest is where we go. Um, second of all, in addition to all of the volunteers that come out and socialize the dog, uh, those volunteers are trained, so they help teach some basic obedience kind of stuff. So that's good. We're also really well known for our medical care for our dogs. Uh, we spent about $154,000 last year on medical. Uh, 90% of our donations that come in are f- towards program. So that means they go towards something to do with the dogs. Uh, So that's a big key for us. Um, You know, the rescuing the dog and the placing the dog are the easy part. The rehab is what we find the biggest challenge with. Either either they've become uh, dog aggressive or toy aggressive or food aggressive. Sometimes that develops... Um, out of boredom for the dog. Uh, sometimes they're, uh, they got medical issues. Uh, a, a big thing that we're seeing over the last year, I would say, is a lot of dogs being surrendered that they've bought from 
what they call commercial breeders, which some people refer to as puppy mills. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with that, there's so much inbreeding and so much other problems that these dogs come in with bad hips and bad shoulders and bad elbows and so on and so forth. And uh, those are what we call our golden angel dogs. Any dog that costs more than $1,000 in medical expenses classifies as a golden angel. And we raise money uh, exclusively for our golden angel fund as well as our just general operating fund. So for people who are looking and, and wanting a golden retriever as part of their family, obviously they've got to do an application. Right. But what are you looking for? Because it sounds like you are putting the dog's best interest at heart. Right. And if you're receiving all these applications, and you know, how many dogs a year do you have come through, do you think? Uh, the last couple of years, it's been in the 260 range. Okay. But it's anywhere between 250 and 300 a year. Okay. So there are a lot of people wanting, and only it sounds like about 10%. What we're looking for is if a dog, for instance, comes in because it was left alone during the day while the family worked a perfectly understandable situations everybody adopts a dog with the best of intentions right right, right. Um, but, but the last thing we're going to do is place that dog in another situation where they're going to be alone all day so what we really look at is the people that are applying and what kind of environment do they have do they have the time to to train a dog um, and to spend time with the dog because it is a real commitment you can't just put them out there as a lawn ornament in your backyard and hope for the best because you know about the three months into it and they tear your drapes down you're not going to be too happy <laughs> so you got to invest into that dog right. as well so we look at those kind of situations we do a home visit and an interview and all of that and then we make the best decision we can when they come out to meet the dog what are some of the characteristics i mean i think all of us think of happy-go-lucky just kind of that sunny disposition mm-hmm. when we think of golden retrievers what what is a family who's wanting a golden retriever, what do they need to have in place? Well, I think the big thing for us is, um, with, with very few exceptions, is a fenced yard because they love to just go hang out. Mm-hmm. You know, the same way that you like to go sit in the sun in the backyard and hang out and read a book, whatever, that golden loves to go lay in your backyard, look up at the trees and see the squirrels running around and all of that. <laughs> we look for people that are not overcommitted. Uh, certainly, we're all super busy and there's nothing wrong with being super busy. But, The big challenge, I think, is to look past our emotional want of having a dog and look at where we are in our lifestyle. And uh, do we have a family that's oriented towards having a dog? Do we have the time to invest? what, what what's going on with the kids if they're if they're in soccer and baseball and football and all these other things inevitably that dog's going to get shuffled to the back so i mean that's really a lot of it we have we actually have three different areas we focus on okay uh 70 of our dogs come from owner surrenders that mm-hmm. i described earlier uh we get another group of dogs that are part of uh, what we call um, puppy mill rescue or commercial breeding rescue we focus on aging out male and female puppy mill dogs because usually by the time those dogs are five or six years old um, they aren't producing the litters that these puppy mills want and a lot of the very um, the less than ethical breeders will destroy those dogs uh. and we can take our time we can bring them to our place Um, They all come with some form of doggy PTSD. We can help them through that, and we can find great homes for them. Uh, The other spot that we bring in dogs from is our Operation Turkey Dog. So we actually rescue dogs from Istanbul, Turkey, that are street and forest and shelters over there where they were once a status symbol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like anything else in supply and demand, as people come along to increase the supply, um, then pretty soon just average folks can afford a golden retriever and they're not such a status symbol anymore and they release them on the streets. And with the uh, with what you mentioned, the happy-go-lucky mm-hmm. kind of goofy personalities, they right. don't do well in feral dog packs. They don't no. do well in the forest and streets. And so we work with a handful of people over there that specifically rescue goldens and golden mixes. And we have such a waiting list that it's not that we are accepting these dogs and not accepting others. Our tagline is we we never say no to a golden retriever in need, you know, and that's the truth. With with the waiting list we have, we know we will find great homes for these dogs. Mm -hmm. So that's really the three primary areas we get our dogs from, owner surrender, uh, puppy mills, and the turkey dog rescue.
And that obviously has to take a lot of money yes. to keep all of this up and going. Um, what are your two big fundraisers that you have? Our two big fundraisers each year are our upcame, upcoming uh, annual gala that we hold every year in Denver. And we've been very fortunate that that's been a sellout for the last three years. So if that's something you're interested in, go to our website at goldenrescue.com and keep your eye on the calendar there for the next one. The other big one for us is Colorado Gives Day in December. That brings a tremendous amount of focus to just personal philanthropy. And so people that think from time to time, oh, we should donate to this or we should donate to that, that causes that 24-hour period for people to really go online and find a charity. And uh, whether it's us or whether it's a human cause or even cats, believe Mm -hmm. it or not, being a dog guy, you know, get in the game. Look at what's out there and where you can contribute your time and your treasure and participate. And we'd love to have you as a Golden Retriever Rescue of the Rockies, certainly. And we We think we do a great job and we've been around for a long time. And do you have a pictures up there of the dogs that are up for adoption? Oh, sure. Okay. I mean, uh, we got eye candy. I'm telling you. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, people go to our website and uh, I, I, I tell our web folks that, um, you know, text is good. Yeah. Pictures are better. Absolutely. You know? I mean, now the other side of that is with a waiting list, most of the dogs that come into our care do not make it to the website. Oh, okay. Because we have families waiting. And gotcha. so when we know a dog is being surrendered, um, we get all the dogs medically checked thoroughly, caught up on whatever they need. Uh, we get their joints assessed and x-rayed if necessary. Uh, we get them groomed. And then we set up the appointments for meet and greets mm. for people that have been waiting for a dog to come in. But yes, so uh, getting back to your original question. So the gala is a big one. Colorado Gives Day is a big one. And then we have several activities throughout the year, online fundraiser for our Golden Angel Fund, where 100% of the donations for Golden Angel Fund goes to the medical care of the dogs. So those, that's really how we get along. And what are the typical, and I'm sure it probably varies a little bit, but costs to adopt Golden Retriever from the Golden Retriever Rescue of the Rockies? Sure. Puppies, which is a rare instance that we get puppies. Uh-huh. We've had a, a couple of uh, strange circumstances where we, we had a dog surrendered, the dog came in and the dog was pregnant and uh, gave, gave birth to uh, purebred Golden Retrievers. That's mm-hmm. happened on a few occasions very rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, puppies are uh, $425 plus a $100 spay or neuter deposit. And then once that's done, we give that back. Okay. Adult golden retrievers are uh, $325 and senior dogs, eight years and older, are $275. Uh, and we have a, a handful of folks that just love those white-faced mm-hmm. senior dogs. And uh, so they are they are very sweet, and but we usually get in, I think the ages are between 3 and 10 years old. That's considered normal. And this is going to maybe a difficult question, but for people who have their heart set on a Golden Retriever puppy, what is your best advice? Oh, so here you go. Okay, give it to me. I want to hear it. <laughs> if you're ready for this. Yeah, I think as, as most Americans, we are very impatient. So we think about, we think about, we think about, and then we make the decision, okay, we're ready for a puppy. I want a puppy. Where's a puppy? Right? And uh, it doesn't happen that way in nature. Uh, and there's legitimate breeders out there, which I highly recommend. You can go to Mile High Golden Retriever Club, and they got a whole page of legitimate breeders. you got to understand, that's going to cost you 1800 to $2,200, and you're going to have to wait. Uh, the reason it costs that much money is not because these guys are getting rich, but because they do such a thorough medical check on their dogs, x-rays, everything, and you get health guarantees on those dogs. And that's that's the way to go if you really just have to have a puppy and okay. you can't wait. I discourage people from going on to the online sources um, and trying to find the bargain golden retriever. Because sometimes that, that and this is where we've had a lot of dogs surrendered, that seven eight hundred dollar bargain golden retriever comes with a ten thousand dollar surgery. Oh, you know, so you get your dog, and all of a sudden, in three months, the dog starts limping. You go in, you find out the dog has hip dysplasia because it's been inbred and overbred, mm. right? And now, not only do you have to decide whether you can afford the $10,000. Um, but if you can't, you have to tell your family about how you need to give up that pet that you went and found the bargain on. So I would say just be patient, mm-hmm. hold on. The other piece of advice would be assess the best breed for you. I love Australian Shepherds, for example, and we have one. One of the habits of Australian Shepherds being a herding dog is if you have little kids, I can guarantee they're going to have little bite marks on their shins and on their legs because those dogs want to herd Mm -hmm. little kids. 
just like they herd cattle right. and sheep. Right. Right. So there's plenty of online sources to go look at typical breed behaviors. So if you decide that you really got to have a dog for your family, look at breed behaviors. There's also online sources that give you an idea of approximate annual cost of a dog. Uh, and that is very, very important because certain breeds are more prone mm-hmm. to cancer and other maladies that are very, very expensive. Uh, so I would think if you do that, you may decide that, you know, a, a two-year-old golden retriever or a two-year-old whatever is every bit as adorable, <laughs> but they're kind of over the puppy stage at that point. Uh, and they'll be a much more settled down family pet than maybe just launching into the first puppy you find. Yeah, great advice. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Kevin Shipley, who is the executive director of the Golden Retriever Rescue of the Rockies. For people who want to volunteer, want to donate, want more information, what is your website again? Website is goldenrescue.com. Perfect. There is volunteer applications on there. There's membership applications on there. There's donate on there. There's all kinds of uh, resources on that page as well. And a lot of good dog eye candy. <laughs> a lot of good dog eye candy. That's right. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm Melissa Moore. This is Mile High Magazine. Thanks for hanging with us on this Sunday. You have been listening to Mile High Magazine. A look at the issues and people shaping Colorado, presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to publicaffairs at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.